Pastor Pat is taking a uh, week out of the pulpit, and uh, as a result of that, uh, we have a guest preacher this morning, and a guest preacher that uh, many of you know, but many of you may not. Eric Raymond, who is the pastor of Emmaus Bible Church, will be preaching for us today. Eric uh, came to Omaha Bible Church as an intern back in 2002, and uh, shortly thereafter became an assistant pastor here at OBC. And at about uh, about a decade ago, we started uh, thinking of planning a church in Bellevue, South Omaha area. And uh, we did that, and uh, Eric Raymond uh, began to work with uh, those people and to begin to start that church. And uh, starting in 2010 and now through today, Eric is the senior pastor at Emmaus Bible Church, uh, right near South High School in Omaha. Uh, it is my privilege to uh, call him my friend. I have great admiration for the ministry of Emmaus Bible Church and uh, really want to welcome him today and ask you to welcome his as well to the pulpit of Omaha Bible Church. Eric, if you'd come up and share God's word with us, we'd appreciate that. Well, it is a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, as Mike mentioned, it's, we go back a long ways, our family and Omaha Bible Church, and we are so grateful for the ministry, the faithfulness of this church, and even taking us in back in 2002, and the sacrifice and the service and the love and the training and the patience of this congregation and the leadership of the church. We are so grateful for it, and uh, we bring you greetings from Emmaus Bible Church, who uh, we pray for you and we are thankful for the ministry that continues here. And it is a deep privilege to be here and to preach God's word to you. So with that, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to read from verses 10 on down to verse 21. And I realize we are parachuting into the book of Genesis uh, this morning. If you've started your new Bible reading for the new year, you're probably not quite to Genesis 28 yet. Uh, But I'll give you the context here in in a few minutes. But let's go ahead and read the text. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 21. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you. And to your offspring, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up to be a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. This is God's word. Pray with me if you would. Our Father, we thank you for the chance to read and to study your word together this morning. We are confident that Jesus says his sheep hear his voice and follow him. So as we read these words, the very words of God, the words of Jesus, we pray that sheep would hear his voice and we would follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, promises are very helpful. I remember this particularly acutely going back oh, over 20 years ago now. Christy and I as new parents with our oldest son, Bryce, he was under two years old, maybe about about two. We weren't yet Christians. We were dropping him off at daycare. We were still in the military. And we had uh, difficulty with, as the, the day went on, he would, he would want mom and dad to be there. He'd grow anxious for us to be there, and it would cause him to be upset. And one of the mornings as Christy was trying to reassure him that everything was going to be okay and we'd be back, uh, she, she stumbled on a phrase that was really, really helpful in his mind. And that phrase was simply, we promise. And it was a bit of a new word for him, but as she began to unpack it, we looked and we'd say, and we began to catechize him each day after that, telling him what promise means. So we simply said, what does promise mean? And then he learned it. Promise means it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So each day subsequent to that, we would say, we're going to leave you. We love you. We'll be back at 4.30. We promise. Well, what does the promise mean? It's going to happen. And that, that helped him through those days to get through that in his, in his young way. Because promises, let's face it, are very helpful for us. This morning, I hope to persuade you that not only promises in general are helpful, but in particular, God's promises. In fact, I want to persuade you this morning that God's promises are more helpful, more useful than you think. To do that, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 28, which we just read. And we're going to look at some ways in which his promises prove more valuable than we might think. So the first is by revealing the source of the promise. Revealing the source of the promise. I think it's probably helpful at this point to give a little bit of the context before we understand something of the, the source of the promise. We read in verse 10 that Jacob left Beersheba and he's going toward Haran. If you know anything about this this section of Scripture, Beersheba is part of the promised land. So Jacob is leaving and going from the promised land, and he's, he's going out away from it. And so you'd be thinking, one of the, the sons of the promise, why is he leaving that area? Well, the short answer is he's running for his life. He's running for his life because in the previous chapter, 
we read that he tricked his brother. And he tricked his father. Jacob is the younger of the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. So by right, Esau should have the birthright. But he connived his way in, snuck away, snuck the birthright, and then stole the blessing via tricking his father. You might remember him dressing up like his brother and pretending and passing it off as if he, in fact, was Esau. Well, the response to the whole thing was not good. In fact, Esau was resolved to kill him. And when Rebekah finds out what Esau is going to do, she shrewdly instructs Jacob to get out of town. You need to run. You need to run for your life. And then Isaac, he's stunned by the whole thing. And he's a bit reluctant to give any blessing to Jacob. But eventually he comes around and he he gives him the full-throated blessing. So Jacob is leaving with his brother fuming, his mother plotting, and his father reluctantly giving the blessing to him. He's leaving, and he's going to get a wife. That's what he needs to do. He's get a wife and get a wife from his mother's family. Send him away to Rebecca's family. So he goes with something of wind at his back. He's, he's going with the blessing, and he's going with the promises, and he knows that God has promised to him. So he has these these promises ringing in his ear. But we're we're to see the tension. Not only does he have the promises ringing in his ear, he's got his brother's threats ringing in his ear. He's got both of them. This is the tension. God's promises and the the, the threats from his brother. And that's why we see him in verse 10 and 11. He's leaving. And it should be noted that he's leaving and he's alone. He's all by himself. This one that has the great promises of God in his shirt pocket is now alone. The one who's promised great offspring, great people, great multitude, has nothing, empty-handed. And you see in verses 10 and 11, he grabs a stone of the place and he puts it under his head and he goes to sleep. This is the one who would inherit the nations. He is an insignificant place. He's, He's lying under the sky and he's got his head propped up on a rock. You could almost hear him say, if we're not pushing it too far, some promises. Here he is alone laying on the probably the most firm pillow in the history of the world, under the sky, all alone, and he manages to fall asleep. Well, in the midst of that, sitting there under the starry Middle Eastern sky, laying on that firm pillow, falling asleep, he has a dream. It's not any ordinary dream either. God speaks to him in this dream vividly, clearly. And before we look at the, the content of the dream, I, I suppose we should at least say a little something about dreams, especially if you're newer to the Bible and you're not familiar with the way in which God speaks to people and the, the place of dreams in the way in which God does that. As Christians, we are well advised today, just like Christians throughout the history of the church, to get our guidance from the Word of God, the Scriptures. That is how God speaks to us rather than our dreams, or even our intuitions, which are, in many ways, helpful guides, but not infallible, not inspired. But we should also note that this doesn't mean that God doesn't speak through dreams, at least periodically throughout the Scriptures. We, we see that. But it's not the primary way in which God does it. It's reserved to the Scriptures. So everything that we have, whether dreams or feelings or intuitions or guts, everything must be submitted to the Scriptures, the Word of God. And I think there's even firmer ground to make such a a bold assertion from the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, where we read, Long ago, 
And at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. That would include this type of scenario by the prophets. But also in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying there's a lot of different ways that God has spoken to people throughout history. But you need to understand the way that God chiefly speaks to people in the last days, that is the time from Christ's life until his second coming, is through his son, the word of God. That's how we hear God speaking to us. But that said, we need to look at this dream and we need to understand how God means to communicate with Jacob. And we're going to to walk through the dream a little bit. So go ahead and look at verse 12. We see some of the specifics about it. It says in verse 12 that there was a ladder, but not an ordinary ladder. It's there's, there's angels of God ascending and descending on it. So this is a ladder in his dream with, with angels on it, moving up and down. Not only that, but there's God standing above the ladder. It's something of a, a stairway to heaven. It's the access point. And then we read in verse 13 that the Lord stands above it and he speaks. Notice what he says. I am the Lord. I I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent one, the creator of all things, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I am Yahweh. The one who would speak from the burning bush to Moses and say, I am who I am. That's who he is. Then he goes on, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. That is, I am a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I'm faithful. That God who makes covenant, also promises to give. And he goes on in verses 13 to 14. He says, I'm going to give you the land, the offspring. They'll be like dust like the earth. And they will spread and they'll be a great blessing. But notice even more in verse 15, he's, he's telling him, I'm with you. I'll keep you. I'll bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. I think if we think through some implications of this, three quick implications of this, we have to see that promises are only as good as their source. They're only as good as their source. Who's the source of the promises? It's Yahweh. It's God himself. Did you see how many times he said it? I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac. I will give you. I am with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. We're talking about God promising these things. This is God making a promise to Jacob. Promises are everything that God says he's going to do for his people specifically. I want you to see here that the point of this is that the source of the promises, the basis for making the promises, is God himself, his own character. Before you even get to the context, you need to see who stands behind the promises. In other words, the promises are as good as God's character. His faithfulness stands behind the character, the the promises. In other words, because God will never change, never cease to be good, Always be faithful. You can trust what he says. His promises are faithful because God has integrity. You could take them to the bank. They're true. They're faithful. What matchless comfort is this for God to speak to Jacob in this way? A second implication would be that we, many of our issues with God's promises 
have to do with our own ignorance. We're ignorance of the content of the promises and the character of the one behind it. Who said all these things? God. What did he say? I make promises to you, Jacob. It's the the character of God and the covenant of God, the source and the substance. It's these two things that we become ignorant of when we, we have amnesia with the promises of God. Now, it shouldn't be because we somehow have trouble remembering things. Because we know, if we just take inventory of our lives, we know we remember things very well. Think of how many people can quote movies back to you. Or perhaps you're one of those people that can quote movies. I tend to fall asleep during movies. Maybe that's why people quote movies back to me. I don't know. But some people can start quoting a movie and just keep going, and you think it's going to keep on going to the credits roll. They just know the movie, just keep on going. Others could be perhaps with sports stats, be able to give you all the stats from their fantasy football team or whatever. They're able to just rattle them off and give the the statistics. Or other people's stories and lives be able to give you updates and all of the details and remember every fastidious detail. Or politics or history or fill in the blank. Wherever you are on that, we all have the ability to remember details. But why is it we struggle with God's promises? If I was to ask you right now to write down on your notes, list five of God's promises and where you find them in the Bible. How would you do? We need to, all of us in this room, need to grow more in our familiarity with the source and the substance of God's promises because they're God's promises. There's nothing better than God's promises because they give us himself. Just think, how how well equipped would you be today to deploy God's promises in a timely manner? As a church member, helping somebody that's grieving or hurting. How well are you to comfort yourself in the midst of difficulty? How well would you be able to answer a coworker or a neighbor or a family member who's struggling through issues and, and they're grabbing onto to driftwood that's floating down the stream and you have an anchor tied to the shore, the living God? God's promises are more helpful and useful than we think because they show us the source of the promise is God himself. Second, they prove useful by reminding us that we are undeserving. We're undeserving. I love going to the, the ocean. Our family gets to go on occasion. I grew up near the water, and I love the ocean. And one of my favorite things to do in the ocean is actually not in the ocean, but on the beach watching people in the water. And you watch the waves coming, and they're growing, and, and unexpected vacationers are there just talking to one another, enjoying the day. And all of a sudden, just one of those large waves just comes up, crashes on them. And they disappear for four seconds. And 12 feet away, they turn up. And then they're looking for the hat and the glasses. And it's comical. You're laughing and enjoying it. It's the way in which the wave surprises the vacationer, just crashing on them. I think this passage is something of a wave crashing, at least on Jacob, perhaps on us. God's promises fall on our heads with a surprising force. Look at verse 16, what Jacob says. As he kind of realizes the whole thing as he he wakes up. 
He awakes from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. In other words, I'm surprised God's here. One of the reasons we have to look at the story and find it so intriguing is because we know the context. Is Jacob worthy of these promises? Has he done anything to, to deserve a promise from God or any type of encouragement from him? Absolutely not. In fact, if we were to assign an animal to represent Jacob, if his little avatar to represent him, what would it be? I would say a skunk. That would be the best animal to show Jacob to this point. The lingering effect of his present is odious. There's a cloud of hurt and brokenness from his deception. It lingers over not only his family, but his whole life as he goes to sleep. He's a skunk. He's a scoundrel. Yet, it's God stooping down, reaching down, and speaking to Jacob, the skunk, the scoundrel. How is this? This is why the popular perception of what Christianity is is so unnerving. You know, the popular perception of what makes a Christian is, is the people that have gotten really good, kind of made varsity in being moral. We've done the good stuff. We've been good people. And God, looking at us and seeing how well we've done, is now going to give us good things. We're going to go to heaven because our good outweighs our bad. How far is that from the truth? It can't be that way. God actually blesses us in spite of our badness. His promises shine and His grace is illuminated because we are so undeserving. God does not look down the corridor of time and see Jacob or any one of us doing anything good that would merit us blessing him. The only basis for God blessing anybody is his sovereign grace and love. He gives us what we don't deserve. It's a blessing. We see that with Jacob. He's undeserving. And he gets these blessings. Sometimes we like to make the Bible, hero, Bible story characters out to be Bible heroes. Oh, if I could be like Jacob. Friends, we're like Jacob, not because he's so good and we're so good, but because he's so bad and we're so bad. And he needs a Savior just like we do. That's where our identification with him is. Jesus kept reminding the religious leaders that he did not come for the righteous but the unrighteous, but they would look down their pious, self-righteous nose and say, we know Jesus. We're sinful, but we're not that sinful. The Lord just kept reminding them that they made a mess of things. They were like toddlers with a crayon on a white wall, just going after it, thinking they're making artwork, but they're actually defacing something clean. And that's what religious works are. It dishonors God. But God's promises come to the undeserving, people who aren't worthy. All people from Jacob the skunk the deceiver to you and me were undeserving. And this, this, should, this should help us. This reminder of who Jacob is and the promises that he gets should remind us that, that we are to be humble and not prideful. The Apostle Paul reminding the Corinthians, for what do you have that you didn't receive? Then you received it. Why do you boast as you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 or 1 Timothy 1, 15, where Paul calls himself the chief of sinners that God demonstrates his mercy upon him 
He showed his patience with him because he's so horrible, but yet God has been merciful to him. Or Deuteronomy 7, where, where, where Yahweh is speaking to Israel and he's saying, but the Lord didn't choose you because you were so great or so multiple, or somehow improved God's stature, but because he loves you, he sets his love upon you. His patience reveal, his promises reveal his patience with us. He has a plan. Listen, Jacob doesn't have this thing figured out yet. In fact, he leaves here and he, he's not really in a good place. It's not till he actually wrestles with God that things actually turn around for him. Here, God is being patient with a rebel, a doubter, even one who's trying to make a deal with him at the end of the chapter. He's, he's trying to, 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 to work with God and make a deal. If you do this, then I'll do this. If, if you do everything you say you're going to do, you're going to be my God. He still doesn't get it. The penny hasn't dropped for him. But yet God remains faithful. He's undeserving and he's still doing it. And he will, in fact, bring him back to the place. It might at first seem like it's unhealthy to focus on the fact that we're undeserving. It might lower our self-esteem. But listen, when you look at who you are and who I am, apart from the grace of Christ, apart from the gospel, and you see that God loves us and, and sets his love upon us, and saves us in spite of our sin, not because of our merit, but because of his grace. He's, he puts the, the beauty of the diamond across the back, black, black backdrop of our sin. causes us to rejoice that he would love us. That he would love us in such a great and profound way. Well, third. The third way to remind us of the value of these promises is to recognize our deepest need. Our deepest need. As you look at this passage and you see Jacob alone, he's sleeping, he's scared. You ask the question, what's his greatest need? What's his, what does he need really at this point? What's well, revealed by the, the conflict that he's experiencing. And, and authors oftentimes use conflict as a way to drive the plot. So the conflict represents a tension and it brings it to a climax in the story, and then the, then the conflict gets resolved, and you, and you move on. So we're in this Jacob narrative, and it's a lot longer than just, just one story. But here in the midst of this, he's, he's in the midst of conflict. And there's obvious conflict on a personal level with Esau, his brother. So that, that's driving the plot. That needs to get resolved. But there's also, and there'll be conflict with Laban, in, in coming chapters. But there's also a, a, not just a personal conflict, there's a spiritual conflict with God himself, and that needs to get resolved. But it's, it's transparent to Jacob, and it's transparent to us in reading it. He needs, to, he needs to work this out with God before anything else gets worked out. And it won't be till he actually wrestles with God in chapter 32 that the, the issue gets worked out ultimately. But here it is the thing that's driving this plot, driving this story. The conflict reveals his deep need. What's so interesting is that God goes to work on his great need. His biggest need, incidentally, is his relationship with God. That's what it is. So he and his brother are at war, but that's small potatoes compared to his issue with God. What difference does it work if him and Esau becomes buddies and him and God have issues? That's the question. That's why God graciously addresses his greatest need, his relationship with God. 
See, if his relationship with God, the conflict with God comes into place, everything else is taken care of. And this really becomes a paradigm-shifting reality for us. If the conflict with God is resolved, then we can face any other conflict. And if your conflict with God is not resolved, then it doesn't matter how much peace you have with others. You will remain anxious and restless, scared. I wonder if we could go back in, in, in time to when you were walking in the door this morning and the ushers asked the question, what's your greatest need? I wonder what you would have said. And some of them may be health concerns could be broken or strained relationships, or wayward children, difficulties at work, financial struggles, uncertainty about the future. All of these things are important and they press upon us with real-time force. But let's remember, in relationship to our relationship with God, in comparison to that, that is the biggest issue. And that's because our relationship with God has the greatest long-term impact. We're talking about heaven and hell. Peace versus restlessness. Anxiety versus calmness. Faith versus fear. It's also because it subordinates everything else. Listen, if you're a Christian, you have peace with God. Here's four things that you can see as a reality of this. If you've trusted in Christ and your war with God, your conflict with God has been resolved, you've laid down your arms, trusted in Christ, repented of your sin, and you're a Christian, listen to these promises that are yours. God promises to see you through and use other situations for your good. Just like Jacob, to be with you in them and use them for your good. Listen to Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who God loves, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. He promises to see you through and use these things for your good and His glory. The fact that God promises to use these trials, secondly, they are not pointless, but they're purposeful. So the difficulty you have in life is not pointless. It's not some distant despot getting some type of twisted joy watching you going through a very hard time. No, he's using it. He's molding and making and shaping you to be more like Jesus. Let's not forget Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. He became acquainted with it through his suffering. Listen to James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the midst of the trial, God causes you to grow. Third, God promises that he sees and is concerned with all you're going through. Jacob might have been tempted to think in that all by himself in the night, he's all alone, nobody cares. God lets him know he cares. In fact, all that you might be going through today, if you're a Christian, God not only sees, but he cares. His son is the compassionate one. One theologian listed all of the descriptions of Christ and his reaction in his earthly ministry in the gospel accounts. And you know what the number one emotion or reaction that he had? Compassion. Our Christ is a compassionate Savior. He sees everything and he sympathizes with weak people in the midst of it. Listen to Psalm 56.8. You've kept account of my tossings, put tear, my tears in your bottle. 
Are they not all in your book? What a beautiful word picture, just seeing that God sees everything and he sees our difficulties, our tossings and our tears. It's as if he, no tear is pointless. He gathers them up and stores them. Far from being distant and unconcerned with what you're going through, he's actually right there. These promises ring true. Remind us again of his faithfulness, that he promises to walk with us through the trials. Listen, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He promises to walk through the trials. He sees and is concerned with what we're going through. He promises to use the trials. They're not pointless and pur- but purposeful. He promises to see us through them for our good. I wonder if you were Jacob's friend and you had the opportunity to give him counsel, what types of things would you say to him? How do you counsel your friends, fellow church members, unbelievers that you know, with what God's word says? How do you help people that are hurting? What do you give them? Well, how God does it should instruct how we do it. What does God do? He speaks to him and he gives him promises. And this is the medicine that we need to take ourselves and this is the medicine we need to give to others. God's promises are more useful than you think. That's what he needs and that's what God gives him. We ought to be like God and speak and give these promises. He tells him, verse 15, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. This is a recapitulation of Genesis 15, where Abraham gets a dream and lets him know that conflict's coming, but God's with him. And so it is here with Jacob. God is with him. This is his need. In years to come, he's going to go through this conflict with Laban as he he gets tricked and deceived, and he learns lessons at the school of hard knocks from Laban, and eventually he comes back. He's going to come back with multiple children. Twelve tribes of Israel and a daughter. A wife, multiple wives, great cattle, rich. And he will come back to this same place in chapter 35 to Bethel. And God will again bless him and he will reaffirm his promises to him that he's going to make him a nation. This, this monument that he makes here, he's going to make another monument when he comes back. Remembering these promises. At the beginning and the end, the going out and the coming back, we're reminded that God is faithful to his promises. He keeps giving it to Jacob and to all his people, reminding him that he can take care of him. His ultimate need is met by the promises of God. I find it interesting that Jacob didn't even know that God was present there. He's surprised by it. Like the waves crashing on his head. Even the way Moses tells the story, he's setting us up. You you notice the place is the prominent theme throughout it, a prominent theme. In verse 11, it's called a certain place. It's got no name or significance. In verse 16, he calls it a place. In verse 19, it's then named Bethel. That is that God is in the place, a house of God. God surprises his people. He has no idea that God's even there, but God's there. Not only is he there is the gate of heaven, 
How awesome is this place, he says in verse 17. It's none other than the house of God. God surprises people with his word. They, they expect nothing, but yet God is there. It reminds me of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth and reminding them that they need to have order and not to be carried away with all of these extra things that they were doing that were distracting from the order, being disorderly. And he tells them that they need to give attention to the preaching and the hearing of the word to don't let distractions because the preaching is so important. And he envisions a situation of an unbeliever coming in and entering who's convicted and called into account and the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really in this place. Perhaps there's some that come here this morning. And you walk in and you have your doubts, but you come here because this is what you are told to do. And you don't know God. And you go through life day after day, assuming that he's not there, or he doesn't care, or he's distant. And you come to a place where the scripture is read, songs are sung, The word is preached and the Bible that you're trying to read suddenly reads you. It reveals your heart. The deepest secrets of your heart, the intentions of your mind are suddenly, as Hebrews says, naked and laid bare. And you say, truly, God is in this place. Perhaps this morning you're not yet a Christian and you find yourself convicted of sin, desirous of forgiveness, and perhaps moved towards Christ. You need to know that all you need to do is confess your sin, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus, and he will certainly forgive you. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but you need to know that you are not shut out because of anything that you've done in the past. The gate of mercy is flung open wide. If you repent of your sin and trust him, he'll forgive you. Absolutely. He forgives you. Well, the fourth way these promises help us is they relativize our lives in light of the big picture. They reveal God God is the source of the promise. They remind us that we're undeserving. It's about mercy. They recognize our deepest need. And then they relativize our lives in light of the big picture. I think this is particularly helpful because we are people that just seem to go from one thing to the next, moving from one thing to the next thing. And our lives are about deadlines and tasks and doing what we need to do. But the promises of God, they relativize our day-to-day lives and put it in the context of a big picture. It's about God. They point us back to all that God's promised. And they point us ahead to all that God promised. And here we are in this wonderful middle of being able to discover who God is and trust in him. They remind us we're not the first generation and we're not likely to be the last. And God is God overall. Well, what's this ladder about? That's the, kind of the heart of his dream. He's got this ladder. Verse 12. How does this relativize everything? Verse 12, it says, He dreamed and there was a ladder set up on the earth and on top of it reached heaven. Behold, the angels 
of God. We're ascending and descending on it. In verse 13, we have the promise reminded here. What we need to understand about the ladder is it, it provides a bridge between heaven and earth. God's in heaven, Jacob's on earth. And there's angels ascending and descending on it. So we have to understand with God at the top of the ladder, reaching from heaven to earth, that God still, even in the midst of their sin, still desires to make his dwelling place with man. You might remember Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cast them out of the garden, puts an angel with a flaming sword, preventing their access back into the garden. They were set apart from, set away from God, and the garden was safeguarded. Now here, in Genesis chapter 11, we see man trying to build a tower to get to heaven to make a great name for themselves rather than to make a great name for God. And God crashes that mountain, uh, that tower down and scatters them. And now in Genesis 28, we have another access point between earth and heaven, and there is God desiring to dwell amongst his people. How is God, a holy God, going to dwell with a sinful people? God has made these promises that he's going to make a nation. He's going to bless an undeserving people. He's going to make his name great. What is this ladder about? We'll flip over to John chapter 1, because our Lord Jesus Christ talks about this ladder. John chapter 1. In fact, he identifies himself as the ladder. Kind of jumping into the the context here. Uh, Early on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is drawing disciples after himself, and we have this and Nathaniel, and we have Philip. And Nathaniel finds himself pretty impressed because Jesus knows his name. And Jesus kind of balks at that and, and lets him know he saw him under the tree. And that also gives Nathaniel a little trouble. And down to verse 50, he says, you will see greater things than these. He's telling him, this is nothing. Nathaniel, if you're impressed because I know your name and I saw you under a tree... You ain't seen nothing yet. Where do you see this? Okay, what is this, Jesus? You have our attention. Verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is identifying himself as the ladder, linking heaven and earth. The angels are ascending and descending on the ladder. Jesus is saying, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's the ladder. He's the access point. He's the way by which we enter heaven. He's the way in which God dwells with his people. In fact, earlier in the chapter, John chapter 1, verse 12, says that the, the word became, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God dwells with people. God comes down amongst us. So Jesus, in his whole entire earthly ministry, is God dwelling with his people. He's the means by which these promises come to fruition. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is our access point to heaven. You might say, Jesus is Jacob's dream come true. Here he is. 
the culmination of all of God's revelatory expressions. Being the full disclosure of what only Jacob could dream about. And these disciples will soon witness revelation exceeding what they could ever imagine. They will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why do we understand this heaven opening? The best way to take that is the entire ministry of Jesus is heaven opening. You can start at the manger with the birth of Christ. And you go all the way until the, the resurrection of Christ, the session at the right hand of the Father. The entire bookends of the ministry of Christ, even now, is the, the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, seeing his glory and his greatness. We see that in his life of obedience as he perfectly fulfills God's law. We see the glory of Jesus Christ and his loving the Father and loving neighbor, doing everything he should do perfectly in our place. We see that in his obedience culminating on the cross where Christ is lifted up so he draws all men to himself. There on the cross, he bears our shame in our place. There Jesus on the cross suffers what we deserve. The Father unloads the barrels of divine wrath so that he might embrace you with divine love. He treats Christ as accursed, so he might treat you as blessed. And there on the cross, he fully satisfies divine wrath so that he could fully exhaust divine pleasure on you and me. He loves us through Christ. But that's not all. On the third day, he is raised victoriously from the grave conquering sin, Satan, and death, bringing in his kingdom inauguration. Then shortly thereafter, he ascends to the right hand of God where he reigns and does reign now. So when he says, you will see greater things than this, he means you will see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we don't see the glory of Christ with our own eyes now. We see them with spiritual eyes through the pages of Scripture as we see his glory outwork in the written revelation. It is all on Christ. He is Jacob's ladder fulfilled. He is the true and greater Jacob or the true and greater Israel. He is the promise come true. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. Think about that statement. All of his promises, all of his promises find their yes and amen in Christ. I was trying to explain this to the kids, younger kids. And it struck me reading Curious George. It's a great picture of it. You know the picture where George has got the balloons and he's got, seems like hundreds of balloons on his hand. More than you can count, all tied to his wrist or his finger. That's the way it is with God's promises in Christ. All of God's promises are tied to Christ as if they're wrapped around his very finger. They all find their yes and amen in him. He is the basis and the assurance and the substance and the fulfillment of everything. That means that if you will trust in Jesus Christ to be forgiven, that you have all his promises. 
and walking as a Christian, clinging to his promises, you have all his promises. In counseling one another with the word of God, you're giving him the gospel. You're giving him Christ. His promises are far more helpful than we would ever think. Let's pray.